It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Today, we are going to be talking about the documentary, The Social Dilemma. And Jason and I have been gearing up for this for a few days. I actually have only seen the first hour or so of the documentary. (laughs) I didn't realize until we started recording today that I probably should have finished watching it. There was no particular reason I didn't finish watching besides time and getting distracted by other things beyond sitting in front of Netflix, which I haven't done much of since I started my travel adventures. And so if you haven't listened to any of our recent episodes or if this is your first episode, welcome. I will share with you right off the get-go that (laughs) I just said the get-co, I meant to say the get-go, that our show kind of goes in a lot of different directions. And I wouldn't be surprised if some brand new people listened because of the subject matter. So welcome if you are brand new to our show and just brace yourself. Our shows are on the longer side. They're very conversational between me and Jason. We're best friends. We've been working together for years. And We're just going to have a very authentic, honest, open conversation about this documentary and see where it goes. Both of us, I think, have a little preparation. I took notes because I knew that we were going to talk about this documentary. So when I was watching it on my laptop, I had it open on maybe like three-fourths of my screen. And then on the other fourth of my screen, I had my notes app and I was typing furiously every couple minutes. And it was actually kind of neat to watch it that way. And Jason says that he has lots of ammunition. And I think we should just kind of dive in, see where it goes, not in any particular order. And where I'd love to begin is, well, first, I feel like we should maybe summarize this documentary for anybody who hasn't watched it yet. Maybe you know of it. Because I've noticed on Instagram, I brought up the documentary over the past few days, and a number of people actually hadn't heard of it. Some people hadn't watched it yet. And it's one of those things that kind of feels like it's spreading, but I feel like a lot of people are going to end up watching this documentary over the next few weeks. So uh, depending on when you're listening to this, we are recording this on September 21st, 2020. And it's always interesting to see when things pick up. But anyways, the documentary is basically examining the role of social media and technology in our lives and how much things have changed in the past five to 10 years and then some. And for a little context, Jason and I have kind of been examining this from a lot of different angles over that time. I got on YouTube, I think in 2007, and created an account that most people don't know about. I studied filmmaking and was using YouTube to distribute my films, my short films that I was making back then. And then I started my website, Eco Vegan Gal, in 2008 and started using YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter back then. And I remember getting really heavily into social media in 2009. I loved it. And at the time, there weren't that many people that I knew that were using it. Twitter and Facebook were the big deals. I had been using Facebook a few years previous. I think I got on Facebook in maybe 2004, maybe 2003. I can't remember. I got on Facebook personally pretty early, but I didn't start my business page and get into it on a professional level until 2008 or 2009. 
And I actually started coaching and consulting people on platforms, especially Twitter. I think that was the first time I started coaching. I had this one client who was using it. She was an actress in Los Angeles and was using it to spread the word about her work, which I thought was really smart. And then the word kind of spread that I was social media coaching and consulting, and I've been doing it ever since. So it's been over 11 years now. And then Jason and I have been utilizing it for our separate platforms for me with Eco Vegan Gal. I got on Instagram in 2011. I remember a friend of mine in San Francisco told me about it. And she was like, this is just kind of a cool app to share your photos. And it's actually funny, speaking of which, I, I saw a great meme today on TikTok, which we'll get to later. But uh, <laughs> the TikTok video was was pointing out how millennials used to upload like all their photos to Facebook like the night after an event. Do you remember that, Jason? I don't know if you ever did this, but I certainly was always really into documenting things since I was a little kid. I love taking videos and photos. So when Facebook came about and you could make these albums of like 90 photos that you took over the course of an evening and upload them the next day and you would tag all your friends. And this TikTok, I will link to in the show notes at wellevator.com along with anything we mentioned. So if you have never visited our website before, it's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We'll link to it all. We'll link to the Social Dilemma movie if you haven't seen it yet. We'll link to any memes or (laughs) anything else that we reference here, uh, studies. I know Jason has a bunch of research he wants to share, but... (laughs) This meme just made me laugh. I think it was actually based on a tweet that somebody put out. And it was it's just funny. My big point here, looking back over the past 11 plus years that I've been utilizing social media professionally and how much things have changed. So I'm curious, Jason, before you dive into your mini history with social media, were you ever one of those people that would upload a ton of photos to Facebook? Like, the day or the night after like an event and tag all your friends, which is not something people do that much anymore. That's why it's kind of funny to think about. Yeah, I think there's like these old archaic functionalities of Facebook that I certainly don't use anymore. And I don't know anyone who uses them anymore. I did used to do that. Yeah. When I would go to say Burning Man or Lightning in a Bottle or Expo. I mean, there's a lot of examples. I think one time I went to LACMA with my mom, Susan, when she came to visit from Detroit. And yeah, like the next day or the day after, it would be like, you know, here's 20, 30 photos of my trip to LACMA or my visit to Burning Man or whatever the case may be. And I don't think I've done that in nine years, maybe. 2011 was maybe the last time I did that. I feel like there are a lot of like, yeah, these old functions of Facebook that I don't want to say nobody, but I certainly haven't done in almost a decade. It's funny you bring that up because it's been ages since I've done that. That also reminds me when you talk about MySpace, which was a platform I obviously knew of. A lot of people I know were using MySpace a lot. I just never got into it. But I know you, Jason, were really into MySpace at one point. And what year was that? Yeah, I think this is a good opportunity to dive into my overarching history with social media. So MySpace, I joined in 2004. Was it 03? It was either 03 or 04 because I was in a band in Detroit called the Bellicose Butchers and we wanted to put our music out on MySpace. And at that time, this is a funny aside, I remember you could connect in networks on MySpace much like you can on other social media platforms now. And I remember one of the people I got introduced to back in like, yeah, 03, 04 was Macklemore. I was like, who's this white rapper dude from Seattle? And I remember Macklemore watching him blow up on MySpace. 
and now of course Macklemore is what he is now and he's a very celebrated and I guess acknowledged musician across the world but I remember back in the day 16 17 years ago on MySpace him pushing his stuff you know his mixtapes and his early recordings on MySpace but I think that was my official first foray into a social media network as we know it and love it but I'm going to go on record Whitney and say that I think if I look at my first like I'll use the word obsessive for lack of a better word, which I think will bleed into a lot of the points I want to make during this conversation about the social dilemma. My first obsession with any type of social connection framework was AOL chat rooms. I remember I joined AOL, I think it was like fall or winter of 1995. And I remember getting on AOL and spending hours, 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 hours in those AOL chat rooms. Of course, you didn't know who you were talking to. You know, it could be like, oh, I'm talking to like, some 18-year-old girl, but it could be like some 45-year-old guy from Omaha. You know, you just, you didn't know. There was no way of knowing exactly who you were talking to. But yeah, I think my first official kind of dive in was AOL chat rooms 25 years ago. But the social media frameworks now, it was definitely 03, 04 with MySpace for sure. Yeah, that's funny because I, I wouldn't really put AOL in that same category, but it was really the leading up to it. It was the coming of age. And I think that's what's interesting is that some people listening remember way before the internet was even available. And some people listening may not remember what life was like, or maybe weren't even alive when the internet started. I mean, (laughs) I don't like to talk too much about age because I think there's a lot of ageism. And just a little aside, one social media trend I really don't like is when people call themselves old. And I'm like, you're in your 30s, you're in your late 20s, you're not old. (laughs) But even if you are, quote, old and whatever number you associate with being old, I don't know. I just I think it's a bizarre trend that we have of calling ourselves old when when why do we need to bring attention to our age? So without getting into the dates and the years of my coming of age story, I definitely was I, I do have memories of when the internet was getting started. And like you, Jason, AOL was a huge part of my coming of age. The timing of it for me was so much about figuring out how I felt about boys and just being curious about things. And I remember like discovering pornography for the first time on a computer, you know, like all of that stuff and being like, oh no, I shouldn't be looking at this, but I'm so curious. And now that's just like, we're in such a different time. I mean, imagine kids right now. Actually, a friend of mine, as a little tangent, a friend of mine I was speaking with the other day said that since her son's eight years old, she's now having to have a conversation with him about pornography because it's so accessible to eight-year-olds right now versus for me, I don't even know, besides like a Playboy magazine, (laughs) if I was exposed to any of that early on. But it certainly was a lot harder. And I we had like one computer in the household and like everybody was using it and we had like limited internet time and we had the weird dial-up internet, especially like AOL. You remember the connection sounds it made? And I remember going into these chat rooms too. And my dad actually, when I was figuring out the internet, he was really into computers and always has been. And he worked at Harvard Law School at the time. And I remember I was visiting him at work and he let me hook up to a computer and like somebody else's office and go explore the internet because it was so innocent back then. And that's when I started going into chat rooms. And occasionally I would be able to do that at home, but I had a lot of chat room experiences with friends, you know, and I'm sure you did too, Jason. You would like get together with your friends and you would like go in these chat rooms and pretend to be older than you were. And you'd make up these fake names. And it was like this fun exploration. And there was like a kind of internet flirtation happening. 
And even though I was pretty young, I did realize, as you were pointing out, Jason, that I could be talking to somebody who was also pretending to be a different age or gender or whatever else. And it was kind of like we were all in it together. And certainly a lot of creepy, weird things could have happened. And that's where like, what's that TV show where that guy catches internet predators? I don't know. I Do you know what I mean? And he's like, they'll go on and there, it's mainly like catching pedophiles, which is like the horrifying parts of it. But anyways, people, I think it might even be called Catching a Predator. Whatever that show is, it's a famous show. The name is escaping me. I mean, I remember as a kid worrying about that. <laughs> like To your point, Jason, as a young girl, it's very possible I could have been talking to some 45-year-old guy on the other line who is trying to like look for girls and pretend he's their age, which is very creepy. And at that time, because the internet was still still so new, we didn't have a lot of regulations. And it is interesting to see like what excited us when we were that young and to kind of be in this wild west, which we're still technically in, like 20 plus 30 years after that, we're still figuring so much out with the internet. And that's really one of the big points of social dilemma is that this is all so new. 1995 was not that long ago (laughs) that we were on AOL. And 2003 to 2005, those years that Facebook was being developed, and then Twitter, and then eventually Instagram. I mean, even Instagram, to me, what's most interesting is that because as I said, I got an Instagram, I think around 2011. And I remember for years, Instagram was not taken seriously at all. It was just this place where people would go and upload photos of whatever they felt like. And and they were horrible photos (laughs) relative. They certainly weren't Instagram-worthy photos, what we consider now. They were often blurry photos because our our cameras were not very high quality. We used all those weird like filters and frames back then. But it was very innocent in 2011, 2012. And I remember in 2013, that I was starting to take Instagram more seriously, but brands and companies in general weren't. And even so, like everybody wanted Facebook or YouTube content. But then there became this shift in 2014, 2015, when suddenly Instagram became the social media network. And that's five or six years ago. So what has happened in these past five to six years is remarkable. And we have been on social media so much longer than that. So it's kind of like it's accelerating at this crazy speed that even though I'm so immersed in it as a content creator, as a coach, as a consultant in this world, even for me paying attention to it every single day, it feels like it's happening so fast. The changes are almost daily. You never know. It's so unpredictable. It's so uncertain. And I feel like that change is maybe too fast for us. And everybody's just trying to like cope with it at this point. But I guess like that's a good place to start is I, I, I'm starting to feel very uncomfortable with the social pressure of it. You know, when we add the social side of this media that we're creating, it has a lot of ramifications. And those are really outlined pretty well in this documentary. There's so much I have to say. I'm really not sure if we're going to get it all out, although we probably will. I think that you and I, Whitney, are in a... We have another layer to what we deal with and experience on social media, that being the fact that we have built our personal brands and the brand that we share, Wellevator. And we've been doing this from a brand and an entrepreneurial perspective. That's one thing that doesn't really necessarily get talked about in the social dilemma and 
I'm sure they left it out because if you look at the number of people using social media networks for just strictly a personal reason versus the people using it as part of a business strategy or entrepreneurial strategy, I'm sure the ratio of people just using it for personal reasons is much higher. But I think what you're talking about is the deeper layer of pressure and stress that comes when you are feeling like you are obligated to create specific kind of content to curate an image because it's part of your brand. And if I think back to the reason why I started a Twitter and a YouTube account. So if we go back a little bit, in 2007, I had only a Facebook and my MySpace account in 07. But then I remember 08, 09, I was working actually with a mutual friend of ours named Jera, who was actually doing PR for me at the time. She was booking live speaking appearances. She was getting me like in local magazines. This was at the very beginning of my career as a chef and nutrition educator. And she's like, oh, have you heard of Twitter? You got to get on Twitter. You got to get on YouTube. So 08, 09, I remember it was this sense of excitement and curiosity, but also pressure to back up what you said of, oh, if I want to build my brand and get more eyeballs on what I'm doing, I need to be on Twitter. I need to be on YouTube. So it was a sense of pressure that got me to start my Twitter account, got me to start my YouTube account, got me to start my Instagram account, LinkedIn. I mean, we can go on down the line, but since about 2008, 2009, it's just been an attendant sense of, yeah, if you want to build your brand and you want to make money and you're going to do your business full-time, you have to be on these platforms. And I think in a way, if we fast forward to right now, it's become inverted on itself for me, Whitney, in many ways. At the risk of sounding cliche, I have a love-hate relationship with social media. And I've been really reflecting a lot on feeling gratitude, right? Especially in light of the social dilemma, which we'll dig into certain aspects. And you mentioned research studies, and I want to dig into the finer points of the parts of the movie we've watched. But where I'm at in this moment, Wit, is realizing that there's been tremendous growth and beauty and gratitude in how these platforms have allowed me to reach people around the world, how they've allowed me to grow my brand, make a living for myself, provide for myself. I have deep gratitude for those aspects of it. However, if I look to my personal mental health and I look to the clinical depression, the suicidal ideation, the anxiety, the things that I've really struggled with, which we've talked about on a previous episode on suicide prevention, I've talked at deep length and depth about my mental health struggles. I think the flip side of that coin is that the more that I have used social media, I don't think there's a causality. We'll talk more about this. I don't think that social media usage is the cause of my anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation. But the more that I research it, and especially after watching this documentary, I believe that there is a correlation. So when I say I have a love-hate relationship, I'm grateful for what they've done, and I'm grateful for how they've helped me build my brand and make a living and connect with wonderful people. I mean, you and I, Whitney, were watching each other's YouTube videos before we ever met in person, right? So I look to relationships, really deep, loving relationships that have been fostered by social media. But there is a dark side. And there is a flip side that I'm examining the role in my mental and physical health and wondering how I want to move forward in using it in a much more mindful and intentional way. And I think that's one of the big aims that you and I both have and certainly a growing aim of mine. And it's been a conflict for me doing the coaching and consulting that I do because I've had so many clients that are just obsessed with the numbers and obsessed with the vanity metrics, obsessed with the image that they create. And I noticed myself over the years feeling really uncomfortable working with people like that, but also having compassion for them because as you're saying, Jason, 
I think a lot of us believe that we need to operate that way in order to be successful. And this reminds me of one part of the social dilemma that really stood out for me and it got me like thinking, yes, this is the part that I am so interested in. And it centers around our self-worth and identity. And the documentary talks about how important it is that the tribe thinks well of us. And I think that's where, I mean, even just saying that that phrase, which I think came directly from the documentary, which based on my notes is probably towards the 45 minute to an hour mark. If you're watching it, you'll see it. And that to me is becoming a, a really big part of the work that I'm doing. I, I've talked a little bit in previous episodes about this new project that I've been developing called Beyond Measure. And the inspiration for Beyond Measure came from noticing how many people were spending their lives focused on measurements. And I I said earlier, we measure ourselves based on our ages compared to one another. Am I older than you? And am, am I younger than you? Where's my advantage? Am I better looking than you? Am I thinner than you? Am I more in shape than you? Am I eating healthier than you? Am I all of these on and on and on, like measurements constantly? Do I have more social media followers than you? Does my photos get more likes? Do I make more money than you? And both of us have been so exhausted. I mean, it's incredibly depleting. And I think that because we've been so aware of that, we've been able to step away from it or kind of modify it, observe it, catch ourselves when we get stuck in that. But I think a lot of people don't have that awareness. And as you'll see in the Social Dilemma documentary, for anyone who hasn't watched it yet, but if if you have, they talk about how we are manipulated to not even notice some of these things. Some of social media is so subtle and so constructed to be kind of hidden and to allow these people that are trying to make money off of it. I mean, so much of the point of the Social Dilemma is that we are being manipulated for profit. And if we don't know that, Or there's a great part in the documentary too, where one of the designers who worked on Pinterest said, even though he knew how these apps were designed to manipulate him, he would still fall prey to it. So it's awareness is not even enough. You have to take sometimes extreme measures. I love in the documentary how there's a scene of a family using the kitchen safe, which is a product that I have and love. I think it's called the K-Safe now. And uh, we'll link to them in the show notes. I can't remember. I might have a discount code for them if you want it. We always try to give discount codes whenever we get them from brands to share with you. And, and if I don't have one, I will try to get one for you. But if you saw The Social Dilemma, you might have noticed the scene where <laughs> I'm not going to share it with you because I don't want to ruin it for anybody who hasn't seen it. But there's this device called the K-Safe. I think they got their start on Shark Tank. And I've had three of their products for a while. And you can use them to lock up your food because if you're like me, there's some foods that you're kind of excited about that it's hard to resist them. But equally as important is our devices. Sometimes we know that we're addicted to our devices and we literally cannot keep ourselves away from them. So one method is to lock them up and put a timer on it. And you can use the case safe for that. And they're really neat. Go check them out. We're not sponsored by them, but I am an affiliate of theirs. So... (laughs) Full disclosure, if you buy one based on our recommendation, we get a little kickback. But I'm an affiliate because I think it's really cool, whether it's food or a device that you put in there. And I thought it was amazing that the social dilemma showed this because the point is that sometimes we are so addicted to technology, we literally can't stay away from it unless it's taken away from us or we've created some sort of barrier. And going back to this idea of self-worth and identity and, and back on what you were saying, Jason, 
there was a really great segment of video clip that I think I had seen before. And I just pulled up a article about this. This is the former Facebook executive. I'm going to link to this summary from 2017 on this website called Quartz or QZ.com. And I want to read this quote. I think this was the full quote that they used in the documentary. His name is Shamath, I believe is how you pronounce it. And he said, we curate our lives around this perceived sense of perfection because we get rewarded in these short-term signals, hearts, likes, thumbs ups, and we conflate that with value and we conflate it with the truth. And instead, what it really is, is fake, brittle popularity that's short-term and that leaves you even more, admit it, vacant and empty before you did it. Because then it forces you into this vicious cycle where you're like, what's the next thing I need to do now because I need it back? And even reading this out loud gives me chills. That line about fake, brittle popularity, I think is so poignant. And again, he said this in 2017, maybe earlier than that. I'm not sure exactly when this was filmed, but I think in the past three years, it's gotten even more intense. I mentioned TikTok and I love TikTok. And they just recently announced just a few days ago that they finally secured themselves in the app store. There was a few months where it seemed like TikTok might disappear for good based on some political drama that was happening. But it looks like TikTok is here for good, but I don't know how good it will be. It's a wonderful platform from my perspective. It's very entertaining. But I think that the danger of TikTok is it gives everybody a platform for popularity. And I've noticed over the 11 months that I've been on it, I remember getting on there in October 2019. So been just a little under a year. And what I've observed over that time is so many people are obsessed with becoming TikTok famous. And people that I know too, I mean, they're just obsessed with the numbers, the vanity metric, how many people watch their videos, how many people are following them. And I've seen a lot of good happen on TikTok. I mean, actually, our podcast has directly benefited from it. One of our guests, Jason Green, has become very successful on TikTok with his content around attachment styles. And he's driven a lot of traffic to us. So some of you may be listening because of TikTok. And for that reason, I'm very grateful. But I think the danger beyond it translating into something positive like that is for the people that are not using TikTok for outside the platform, their focus is entirely based within the platform. And TikTok being kind of volatile, again, it almost got taken away from us entirely. What happens to somebody when this fake popularity truly is short-term? And as Shamath was saying, does that leave you vacant and empty? And then are you craving another way to get your fix, another way to feel validated, another way for your self-worth and identity to be shaped? What happens to people, though, when everything is taken away from them, when they're bullied online, when the cancel culture that we've talked about in a number of episodes, what happens if you get canceled? And what does that do to your mental health? Well, I think that's a perfect segue, Whitney, into what I want to cover, which the part of this that is most compelling and concerning to me is the mental and emotional health aspects of how we engage with and use social media and where it's heading. One of the quotes that I thought stood out most to me in The Social Dilemma was that there are only two industries which refer to the people that they engage with as users, and that's narcotics and software. Those are the only two industries that refer to the people they engage with as, quote, users. 
right? So if we examine that every time we get a like or a heart or a message in our inbox or anything that is validating our sense of self-worth, we're getting a tiny little hit of dopamine in our brain, right? So what this means is dopamine is the chemical neurotransmitter in our brain that is activating the reward centers, right? It's job well done. You did good. This is amazing. Yay, dopamine. Dopamine's the feel-good neurotransmitter. The danger in this is that we start to associate that this is the source of our dopamine. We start to become dependent for our dopamine fix on the likes, the hearts, the follows, the numbers, the number of DMs in our inboxes, the number of sponsorships we get. So not only the education I'm doing, but my personal battle and ongoing struggle with mental health, this is the aspect of it that's most, again, compelling and concerning to me is that there are many, many studies that have come out. And it's interesting, Wit, because as we were planning to talk about this more in depth today, this episode, you and I were both feeling like we had so much to share. I actually got a message in my inbox this morning, <laughs> speaking of dopamine, from um, one of the authors I've been following for the past probably three years. Uh, his name is Mark Manson. We've mentioned him on the show. He's the best-selling author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck and Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. He's got two best-selling books. And I like Mark's tone. He's very conversational. He's very off the cuff. And he actually had in his newsletter today an entire long section about his take on the social dilemma. And he linked to two different articles. He has some concerns about this. And he said, despite all the kvetching about social media making people more anxious or depressed, there are some research studies showing that it does not, in fact, make people more anxious or depressed. However, he also links to an article about teenage girls specifically that it does show that it increases their anxiety and depression. So I went down the research rabbit hole, and I'm not going to read the intricacies of these studies, but I do want to talk about much like I guess you and I, Wit, in the past have mentioned like, look, if you're doing research on food or health or nutrition, you can find conflicting studies for pretty much damn near anything out there, right? Okay, keto is good for you. Keto is bad for you. Veganism is good for you. Veganism is bad for you. It's okay to have oil. It's not okay to have oil. So much like those conflicting studies, I feel like going down the rabbit hole right now of depression and anxiety related to social media, you see some conflicts. So the first one really quickly is a study that was done at Brigham Young University. We will link to this in the show notes. It's from the website sciencedirect.com. And the full-length article is, Does Time Spent on Social Media Impact Your Mental Health? An eight-year longitudinal study. So the highlights are basically that they found that time spent on social media was not directly related to individual changes in depression or anxiety over an eight-year period. The lack of a relationship was found even in the transition between young adolescence and emerging adulthood. And they found that there were not any stronger or more deep results for girls or boys. Okay, so that's one thing. And I guess it was 500 participants between the ages of 13 and 20. So we will link to that, dear listener, if you want to dig deeper into the metrics of this result. So that's one that said, eh, there's not really a correlation. But again, you go to a different study. This is what's confounding. And this is a study that is on SagePub, journals.sagepub.com. Again, we will link to this in the show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And in this one, again, really quickly, two surveys, two studies of US adolescents in grades 8 through 12. So this is junior high through senior in high school. Looked at stats on suicide deaths between 13 and 18-year-olds, depressive symptoms, suicide-related outcomes, and suicide rates between the years 2010-2015, specifically focusing on females, okay? 
they looked at these adolescent girls that were on new media, including social media, computers, electronic devices, and that they were more likely to report significant mental health issues. And that these adolescents who spent more time on non-screen activities, in-person interactions, sports, extracurricular activities, homework, reading, were less likely to experience those symptoms. Okay. So it's interesting because you have two things that are kind of in direct conflict with each other. So I think it's interesting because it goes back to what you and I have said, Whitney, again, going back to personal health, that in some ways, yes, statistics and research studies are valuable. They are. But I really think what this comes down to and where I want to steer this conversation deeper into is looking, taking a deeper look at ourselves and how, asking ourselves, how am I using these devices? Because again, I go back to it with, I look at when I was diagnosed with clinical depression in 2014, I had been experiencing depressive symptoms, suicidal ideation and anxiety for years before that. And I didn't really start cranking up my social media usage until like 2009. So 11 years ago, right? Prior to 2009, would I get depressed sometimes? Sure. Would I feel down? Yeah. But if I'm honest about it, from 09 onward, I have experienced significantly higher rates of depression, suicidal ideation, anxiety, and mental health issues. Again, I'm not saying that social media is the cause and I don't believe it's the cause. I don't want to demonize it, right? I'm not here to say social media is the devil. It's bad. I do think though, as you mentioned, and what this documentary outlines is that attention is the economy. And the longer that they keep us on the apps, the longer that they keep us on the websites, the longer they keep us interacting, they make more money. They make hundreds of billions of dollars. It's the attention economy. And to go back to what you said, Wit, I think one of the pressures that people feel driven by to get the numbers, get the likes, get the following is they realize that the people that are most successful right now, with few exceptions, are not the most talented. They are not adding the most value to society or contribution of positivity. They're the ones that get the most attention. You know, people are like, oh, the Kardashians, for some reason, they always talk about the Kardashians as like the poster children. But the reality is, why are they most successful? They command the most attention and people are rewarded for commanding the most attention. But you know what? The reality is too, wit, and I'm not saying this to be demeaning, but we're all in some ways just fodder for the machine. Like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube doesn't give a shit whether Kim Kardashian or Kanye or Obama or Oprah or you and I, like in reality, we're all numbers and algorithm metrics and fodder to feed the machine. Like we all are. And I'm not saying that to be dismissive. I'm saying like, we really need to look at like, it dehumanizes us in certain ways. It dehumanizes us in the sense that we're all just food. We're all food to feed the algorithm. We're all food to feed the advertising metrics. We're all food to generate billions in revenue for a very, very small group of people. And that to me, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. And this is why that awareness is so important because I think a lot of people will hear things like that and think, well, it's fine. It's kind of like when it comes to privacy. And we did an episode on data privacy with Paul Jarvis a few months ago, which we will link to in the show notes at wellevator.com, including all of the links to the articles Jason just referenced. And again, our website is wellevatr.com. We have a lot of resources on mental health. So if you're listening to this and struggling with anxiety, depression, not enoughness, all of these things actually can come up for us on social media, especially when we fall into the comparison trap. We have free eBooks and courses for you at wellevator.com. And it's really our aim to support you beyond this podcast. So we hope that you'll take advantage of that. And I think this is also fascinating because a lot of us are so used to this, whether it's like giving away our privacy 
and thinking like, I have nothing to hide. Like, why do I need to keep things private? But one of the big points about privacy and social media usage in the terms of service too, which is always very interesting, a lot of us give away a lot of our rights, our creative control to these companies that can use us for their financial benefit. And we give it away because it feels so satisfying. I think that's one of the major points of the social dilemma as well, is it just the people that are creating these networks know how our brains work. They're studying our psychology. They know how we react to things. So everything that we're doing on our phones, on our devices, on these apps, on these websites, this is being monitored. This is being studied. And so in a way, they use the phrase lab rats in the documentary. And they have this phrase, it's massive scale contagion experiments. It's a lot of unconscious habit programming. So we might feel like we have a lot of control, but we might not have as much as we think that we do. And we might think, well, I'm getting so much out of this. I'm benefiting it. It's a fair exchange. But I don't know if it's really that fair because we don't know exactly what's happening to all this data. We don't know what's happening when our faces are being collected, our videos, our likeness. We're giving away a lot of those rights. And we also might even be doing that for people without their permission. There's so many cases online of people's likeness being recorded and and utilized. I mean, we see bullying videos. We see videos made for entertainment like TikTok. The kind of dark side of TikTok, you'll see a lot of bullying, for lack of a better word, of people sharing videos of somebody else and making fun of them or pointing them out. I mean, I just saw one the other day that was very political, and it was somebody recording a protest. And the person behind the camera was saying awful things to the protesters. And the protesters were recording this person. So basically, on both sides are being recorded. Both sides were shouting cruel things to one another. And the person that posted this on TikTok really came across as very self-righteous. And you read the comments and everyone's like, oh my God, those protesters are awful people, you know? And there's part of me that agrees with that. There's part of me that's entertained by that. And then there's another part of me that thinks like, this is kind of sad human behavior that we're using this type of cruelty as entertainment. And you see that a lot on social media, but especially on YouTube and TikTok. There's this kind of accepted way of operating where we can record people without their permission and then say or do awful things to them and then become very self-righteous as if, well, they deserve it. And that makes my skin crawl. I think it's horrible because to Jason's point, we don't know the long-term ramifications. Like That person might seem like they're not bothered by it, but who knows what happens when they go home. I was listening to a few audiobooks on my road trip. And I remember one of them talking about the increase of suicide, especially amongst teenagers. And I think a lot of this is affecting teenagers in ways that we don't really even realize yet. And I think because we are in this lab rat experimental stage of social media, that this might be incredibly detrimental. And to the point that we made towards the beginning, Jason and I have, and maybe some of the listeners do as well, have that perspective of seeing the internet evolve over our lifetimes. I remember life before the iPhone. <laughs> you know, I, I actually worked at Apple the day the iPhone came out. So I have a very integrated experience with Apple and how that device changed the course of our lives. But again, that was in 2007. That was 13 years ago. It's not that long ago. And so 
thinking about what life was like before we had access to the internet in our pockets. We have to kind of dive deep into how we felt. And Jason, your point about noticing your mental state from 2009 and beyond and what it was like before that. And some people do not have the awareness to remember that. And some people may have been born after this time or they were growing up during this time. And so they don't even remember what life is like before all of that. But coming back to my point about utilizing content for this temporary satisfaction, but not realizing the long-term issues with it, I think is a huge problem. And before we started recording today, Jason and I were having a little discussion about the website OnlyFans. And I was starting to say to him that I don't have a problem with people going on a platform and creating private content and making money off of it. But then I start to wonder, hmm, this seems a little too convenient. It seems a little too easy to go make however much money on this website. I wonder, I don't even know what the OnlyFans terms of service are, but a lot of people are exposing themselves in very vulnerable ways just to make some money. They're going on these platforms and seeing their friends on there making money. And I see a lot of this on TikTok. I would, going back to the benefits of TikTok, I feel like you can learn a lot about humanity on TikTok for better or for worse. And so I see a lot of people discussing their experiences on OnlyFans. And so there are people on TikTok that post like tip videos about how to make money on OnlyFans. And then I'll read through the comments. And there's so many people in the comment sections of these TikTok videos saying like, "Ooh, I want to do OnlyFans. I heard I can make a lot of money from that. And they're discussing these tips about exposing themselves in their bodies or even their body fluids. <laughs> I was telling Jason how um, there's a big trend. and There has been for a while, but it's becoming a trend on, on OnlyFans apparently and some other websites where you can like women and men can like sell some of their undergarments <laughs> for lack of a better term to be kind of coy about it. They're selling their soiled undergarments, right? To people. And one person pointed out in the comments, they're like, what if your DNA is being stolen? And maybe that sounds paranoid, but there's a part of me going, that's a kind of a good point. Like, in other words, we're putting things out into the world, whether digitally or in that case, physically, we're giving it to somebody in exchange for their money, which feels just a little too easy, a little too convenient. And I think anytime something is that easy, whether it's popularity or money, we should examine it because what seemingly just takes a few minutes of our time to gain something, we need to also address what we're losing, whether it's our mental health, whether it's our privacy, our data, potentially, I don't even know how DNA works in this sense, but like, what if somebody was like buying your undergarments so that they could like <laughs> take uh, your personal bodily fluids to do so? I don't know. I don't know if this makes any sense. Again, I haven't researched it at all, but it just made me wonder and pause for a second and think there's kind of always a consequence to taking the easy way out, in my opinion. Like when something's too simple, there's a catch to it often. And then it's also not sustainable. That's the other thing. It's like, well, maybe there's no catch. Maybe somebody, maybe they just innocently want a pair of your panties to do whatever they're going to do with it. And if you're okay with that, that's fine. So if it's all innocent, that's great. But also their consequence there is, are you going to base your entire income on selling your underwear to strangers on the internet or getting nude in front of strangers on the internet and not knowing what they're doing? Are they taking screenshots? Are they capturing your image? Are you okay with that? Where is that being distributed? 
earlier this year, I talked about how my eyes really got open to the pornography industry. Going back to what I said earlier, it's changed so much in my lifetime. And now a lot of these porn websites are their terms of service allow people to post anything that they want on there. And so people are recording others without their permission and sharing some either very private moments. There's revenge porn. There is people doing things to one another without their permission. I'm trying to be mindful of the words that I use here to to not trigger anybody emotionally because these are sensitive subjects, but somebody could record you or sexually abuse you and then post it on a porn website to make money from it. And that's all allowed on some websites. So I think we do need to pay very close attention to our usage and what we're gaining and what the costs are. To me, I think the deeper level of concern, Whitney, that gets brought up, you talked about perhaps the flip side to how making easy money or it seems too easy. One thing that I've hesitated to do, and I actually want to pull the reins a little bit even tighter on this, is talking about certain aspects of my personal life or sharing those things online. Because I feel like overall, if we look at attention being the most valuable currency right now online, which it absolutely is, you know, whether that's these platforms and social media apps garnering our attention by showcasing people that are getting a massive amount of attention, like that's the economy. I mean, the more attention, the more dollars. But I think there's an offshoot of this. There's a branch of it, which is that almost like radical vulnerability is also a currency. And here's what I mean by that. I never got into and I never really felt comfortable with the idea of the kind of vlogging style. And for any listener who doesn't know what a vlog is, it's a video blog. It's essentially a style of YouTube or long form video creation that is documenting every day of a person's life from who they're dating, who they're breaking up with, what they're eating, the friends they're hanging out with. And a lot of people got massively successful. I mean, Jake Paul is probably the first person that comes to mind, although there are hundreds of others that like, here's my life and I'm living this crazy wild life and here's everything that's going on. And they're rewarded for that level of not just vulnerability and perhaps oversharing their personal life, but the level of outrageousness that they are willing to showcase from their life. My point is this, I find it very bizarre that people will send me messages asking about my personal life. I got some DMs recently about like, I do not even know these the people, their first name, in some cases, Whitney. And I want to circle, I have, I have a point of all this, anthropological point to all this that I'm going to loop it back to. They're like, oh, how is Bella? I haven't seen Bella in a while. Is she okay? Is she all right? I haven't seen her. Just checking in. I'm like, I don't know who the fuck you are. Who the fuck are you? Like, I literally, this person doesn't even showcase their first name. I don't know who they are. They're like, I'm just making sure your dog's okay. That seems innocent enough, right? It does. And I don't think I'm overreacting, but it's I'm so hypersensitive right now to strangers in my social network asking me about my personal life. Like, oh yeah, I saw that you on your stories, you might be dating someone new. How's that going? Do you have a new girlfriend? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, it's none of your fucking business unless I want to share it with you. Like people sending me DMs about this, right? And it bothers me, Whitney. It bothers me because it has now become so socially acceptable to share anything and everything about our lives, literally, because we see internet celebrities doing this where they're sharing, they'll do breakup videos, right? Like it's so cringy to me to see someone like, yeah, we're breaking up. We made a video about it. I'm like, why? Well, attention, right? Those videos get millions of views. And I think it bleeds over into, it's become a socially acceptable thing to DM someone you don't physically know, you don't personally know, and ask them about their personal life. And I don't like it. And I don't want to respond to those messages anymore. 
Okay, so why am I bringing all this up? It's something that you may have heard of, Whitney. Years ago, this was like 2011, there was this thing about how over the course of human evolution, most of the time that we've lived on planet Earth in some sort of organized structure of society, it's been in a tribal arrangement of only like 150 people. So there was a professor of evolutionary anthropology at the University of Oxford named Robin Dunbar, and he was talking about through his research and looking at these massive social networks on Facebook and all the others we have now that that's not typical of how we have existed on the planet in organized human society that you look at the hunter-gatherer societies right that there's a sweet spot like the bushmen of southern africa to native american tribes amish hutterite communities like sort of ancient societies or ones that even exist to this day they only really know and have intimate relations as in knowing each other's name of about 150 people and that we are being stretched thin emotionally we're being stretched thin psychologically we're having all of these modern day complications trying to maintain networks of hundreds thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands or in the case of these mega influencers and celebrities millions of people and how unnatural that is and not only unnatural but how unequipped we are from a anthropological, biological, psychological, emotional perspective to handle that number of connections. And I say this, and we'll link to this article in the show notes, and it's an NPR article that you can either read or listen to. The title of it, it's a science article that says, don't believe Facebook, you only have 150 friends. And I love this because if I, again, transpose this on my own experience wit, right? Because again, we can talk about research till we're blue in the face. Again, we have three really amazing articles we're linking to in the show notes, but I feel a sense, and I don't use this word lightly, I feel a sense of resentment sometimes because it's not just my email, right? So I have my primary email box. We have our Wellevator company email box. That's two email boxes. We have text messages. That's a third thing people can reach me. But then on every single one of these social platforms, there are DMs. So mind you, that's already three, two email inboxes and one text message on SMS on my phone. Then you have DMs on Facebook. You have DMs on Instagram. You have comments and DMs on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and TikTok. That is nine portals for people to reach me with messages, requests, pings, questions. That's insane when you think about it. For me, it is. And that might not bug certain people. Certain listener might be like, that's not that big of a deal. They're so great. I've, I have seven DM inboxes and a cell phone and texts and two inbox. To me, if I really sit with that and we talk about awareness, Whitney, that's fucking overwhelming. And so the resentment I feel is it's how easy it is for thousands of people to contact me all of the time asking me for stuff. And if I don't respond to a stranger, this actually happened the other day, they were asking me again about Bella and her food. And they're like, oh, I can see you're not responding. Unfollow. I'm like, then unfollow. Like, I don't owe you an answer. And that's the thing is people think that you owe them an answer now. And that drives me insane. I was thinking about this the other day too, how people will use the threat of the unfollow. And I was reflecting on like, I think it's a power thing, honestly. It's like users feel powerful because they believe if they unfollow you, that that's going to like ruin your career self-esteem. And for us as content creators, we have been trained to believe that we always need to be gaining and we can't lose. And if we lose followers, then that's a sign that we're not doing well enough. And so I've fallen prey to that mentality for years ago. I was so caught up in that. And it still affects me, but not as much as it used to. 
where it was just this obsession with getting to certain numbers. And when I really examine it, Jason, for me, I'm not so triggered by the private messages like you are. I do get overwhelmed by email. Email bothers me the most, whereas comments and messages, like I don't receive enough to feel overwhelmed by it. And we all have our different thresholds of what overwhelm feels like. But email really overwhelms me. And, and that's where I get resentful. And I think, like, oh my gosh, like, why do all these people think that I have the time to sit around and respond to every single email? And if I don't get to it at a certain point, they're going to keep bugging me until I do. And there's so much miscommunication that happens through text. And so I've actually been doing more video or voice responding to people. And that's actually helped me connect with people more, but that's a whole nother subject. It's just that you're right. There is this sense of entitlement, I think, that both content creators have, as you're saying, like these influencers and the celebrities, there's a sense of entitlement because they've worked so hard and they've earned it. But from my perspective, there's no overarching definition of what it means to earn something because there's so many ways to fake influence. You can buy followers. That's been an issue for many years. And Jason and I both know people that have literally faked it till they've made it or their entire version of making it is based on faking it, right? And that's really hard for people that have tried to do it very authentically and been very real in their approach to social media marketing. But it's the Wild West. So people can get away with stuff and just make it work. And they don't really have to pay much much consequences for cheating. We are constantly rewarded. And because these vanity metrics have become so important in our world and increasingly important, the numbers game is an ongoing thing. It's just getting worse. I have not seen it get better. We've seen some of these social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram trying to change it so that you don't see the numbers. But that change has not really happened. And I don't know if it ever will. So right now, We become obsessed with how many friends we have, how many connections we have, how many followers, subscribers, on and on and on. And that gives us that false sense of power, that false sense of influence, that false sense of community. And then as viewers, as users, as community members, I mean, I imagine part of the reason that they may respond in these ways that you've mentioned, Jason, is simply because they're looking for their own sense of power. And this focus on numbers is actually not just detrimental for the content creators and influencers, like this obsession with having so many numbers. But imagine how it feels to be somebody within that community and not be a content creator like you and I are, Jason. If they're simply just a user, as a participant, as an audience member, they probably feel like they don't matter at all. So perhaps that's what leads to them saying things like, well, I'll unfollow you because that's their only sense of mattering. If you don't respond to them, it can be so hurtful and that translates into them trying to hurt you back. And I think this is where this all becomes so detrimental to everybody is that we're all being toyed with. We're all being manipulated. We're all being told that we don't matter unless we do this or that. And Being in this world of influencer marketing, which is continuing to grow. Again, like you and I, Jason, have been 
in this field before it was even called influencer marketing. Like that's a relatively new term. And now you have all of these people that are kind of power hungry and obsessed with getting numbers because they want the rewards that come along with the numbers. We've been taught to believe that we have to have X amount of followers in order to make X amount of money or get X amount of products or X amount of experiences. I think a lot of influencers have been manipulated without even realizing it because we're used as examples. Like, hey, check out what so-and-so is doing and look at the rewards they're getting. You could do this too if you get the same amount of followers. And so now we have thousands, maybe million plus people who are desperate to become an influencer themselves because they've been taught for many years to see all the rewards. And I think that's part of the reason it's so important for us to speak openly about this because it's not as glamorous as it might look. It's really hard and there's not much foundation there. It could fall apart at any moment's notice. Like I said before, the platform like TikTok could be taken away at any moment's notice. Facebook could dissolve. We saw MySpace dissolve. All of these platforms go through ebbs and flows of their own types of power. And meanwhile, these companies are trying to keep themselves in that place of power. They are trying to design themselves to always be on top and always be important. I mean, we see Instagram desperately trying to copy the magic of TikTok, and maybe they'll succeed, maybe they won't. We saw what they did with Snapchat, which I used to use. I was just thinking about the other day, Jason. I go on Snapchat for personal reasons. I don't use it publicly at the moment. But four plus years ago, I used to love using Snapchat because I loved that story feature. And then Instagram created their own story feature. And now I use that instead of Snapchat. So what used to be so powerful on one platform is now on another. And we see this happening constantly. And I remember a year ago when I was first noticing TikTok and getting into that world, there wasn't much of a celebrity impact at that point. But now in the past year, we've seen TikTok rise up. And now there's all these like big influencers coming out of TikTok. And then that reminds me too of Vine and how powerful that was. What probably back in like, what year do you think? 2014, maybe 2013, Jason, when um, Vine was like this big app and it created a bunch of quote, influential celebrities or, or celebrity influencers like Jake Paul and his brother Logan. They rose to fame because of that platform, but then that platform was taken away from them and they had to scramble to figure out another way to monetize and stay relevant and create on different platforms and adapt to that. And that's exhausting. But we don't focus that much on burnout side of it. We disregard a lot of that. And I have a lot of compassion for really big content creators or influencers out there who are basing their whole sense of worth and identity and financials based on whatever platform they're on without realizing it could be taken away from them at any moment's notice. Yeah, this is in particular, I think, so relevant, Whitney, because when you realize that the system can be rigged and popularity and influence can be bought, it engenders a lot of emotions. And as you mentioned really briefly, we know, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus because that's not what I want to do here on the podcast with you, Wit, but by calling people out specifically, that doesn't help them, doesn't help us by starting a, a war on our podcast. But we know specific people in our industry that have bought their way to a New York Times bestselling book. There's one in particular author that years ago, I had found out through friends of hers and acquaintances and people in the industry that she put some ads out on Craigslist. 
and got dozens of people and paid tens of thousands of dollars to do this to, on the day her book was released, go into Barnes and Noble and bookstores all over the country and physically go in and paid them to buy her books, which instantly got her like in the top five of the New York Times bestseller list. You can still do that to this day. You can rig the system. All it takes is money and you can rig the system. Much like social media, there's actually a platform. I learned about this platform like five years ago, Whitney, and there's many, but this is the one that that one friend of ours in the industry mentioned. It's called iDigic, I-D-I-G-I-C.com, where you can buy Instagram views for videos. You can buy Instagram followers and buy Instagram likes. Now, people are like, oh, that must be prohibitively expensive. It's not. For 5,000 followers, they will basically, this company, this offshore company will design profiles and then assign them to like your account. 5,000 followers, you ready for this, is $40. So if you want to have instantly, like let's say you want to start an Instagram account or you're already existing and you want to have 100,000 followers, it only takes $800 for you to get 100,000 followers on a platform like this where you can buy manufactured accounts that will follow you. And then what you do is you're like, oh, wow, how'd so-and-so get 100,000 followers so quickly? Well, guess what you can do then? You can go and buy likes. And then you can buy the attendant amount of likes that metrically would fit 100,000 followers, right? So you can buy 10,000 likes for $70. So again, the danger in all this, as you mentioned, it's the Wild West, Whitney, is that if you have the right connections, which anyone can Google a place like iDigic, if you have $800, you can instantly have 100,000 followers. If you have another $70, you can have 10,000 likes per photo or per video post. So all it requires is a person with enough capital and they can manufacture an identity for themselves on social media. And this is very important because the comparison trap and the not enoughness and the mental health we've been, been discussing throughout this entire episode is like, it's real because we compare ourselves so quickly to another person's following, their success, their likes. Oh, look, I got my brand new McLaren. I got my beautiful wife or husband. I've got this perfect idyllic life. But people are manufacturing their identities. They're manufacturing their followings. We don't know what's real. And that's the scariest part. And to go back to the social dilemma real quickly, Whitney, there's an interview with Mark Zuckerberg. And I saw this years ago. They briefly show it in the social dilemma. But they were talking about fake news and uh, uh, certain Russian operatives that had bought advertising and infiltrated certain Facebook groups to potentially skew the election results in 2016. And they were asking Mark Zuckerberg about the role of the accountability of Facebook's algorithms. And his response was like, well, we'll just develop more advanced AI. And the AI will, in our opinion, be able to root out the quote, fake news. But the problem with AI that they're talking about, you look into deeply into AI research is AI, from what I understand, does not have the ability to discern objective truth, right? Like AI, from what I understand, is not like, oh, this is objective truth of reality. Anything that is not in alignment with objective truth and reality based on the algorithm of the AI, we are going to ban that or take it off. So if they're relying strictly on AI to discern truth from fiction or root out the fake news, from what I understand, it's not going to be able to do that because there's no programming or objective algorithm metrics to obtain absolute truth. So if these platforms are relying on AI, Whitney, to discern truth and therefore root out fake news or conspiracies or whatever the fuck they're trying to do, researchers are saying that it probably can't happen. 
And there also isn't much of a motive for it to happen because as the social dilemma talks about, fake news spreads up to six times faster than real news and false information makes more money. So for a platform like Facebook, they're probably benefiting from that fake news, that outrage and the confusion that people have and the vulnerability that we feel when we don't know what's right or wrong, what's true or false, what's up, what's down. When we feel scared, when we feel threatened, when we feel pitted against each other, like we start to take actions to protect ourselves. And a lot of the time that involves us spending money on something. I mean, it'd be interesting to see how much money has been made during the pandemic when ironically, a lot of people lost money, but some people as we saw, are taking extreme measures to stock up on food and supplies because they were terrified and buy all of these things. I mean, so many things sold out during the course of the pandemic that you couldn't even get access to them. Like The first thing that comes to mind is webcams because now so much of our lives are based online. People are buying webcams to do their work or to connect with others, which also makes me think we are moving into this time of digital communication in a whole new way and the ripple effect that'll have once we get comfortable with it. And talking about mental health, mental health has been a huge issue during COVID-19 and quarantine, but it might not be over for a long time because certain people realize, oh, I don't need to go to the office anymore to work. I can stay home. And that sounds wonderful, but if you're socially isolated, that's going to take a toll on your mental health. And if you get used to FaceTiming with people or using apps to communicate with one another, whatever that might be, Zoom, Marco Polo, I just started using recently, (laughs) Voxer, all these other platforms where you can communicate with people through audio and video, it becomes really comfortable, especially for someone like me who has some social anxiety. But I think a lot of people have social anxiety. And actually, I think social anxiety is going to get worse because of the pandemic. And people are going to start to think, you know, it feels a little bit better for me to stay home. I feel safer. And at first, we think we're protecting our physical health. But I think that we're getting so used to not being around other people anymore. We become used to the digital communication without realizing that it's crucial for us as human beings to interact in person, at least through voice. I read recently that text-based communication is so new for us as human beings that we don't even know the ramifications it has on our mental health. And so we need to make sure that we're communicating vocally, at least with people either on the phone, because phone usage has gone way down thanks to text messaging. Now people avoid having live phone conversations And in fact, all of these tools, like I mentioned, Voxer and Marco Polo, which are great, they're very convenient, but they're shifting our communication styles. It's no longer live communication. It's now whenever it's convenient. It's whenever I feel like I look okay to be on camera to record a video. And then people become very self-conscious. In fact, one of my friends told me recently that he feels like he has to look a certain way before he makes a Marco Polo video that's being privately sent to his friends. And so social media has also conditioned us to become very self-conscious of ourselves because of the use of filters or because of lighting and all these camera tricks we've used. We're now afraid for our close friends to see us look disheveled. (laughs) 
right? We're afraid to admit that we don't always look perfect on camera. And so there's not only an issue of not communicating and being with people in person, but now there's all these levels of fear and anxiety and pressure to be camera ready, even with the people that we supposedly know the most and trust and feel safe with. And I think all of this is having a ripple effect on us that we will not know for many years. And by that time, we may be so used to all of this that it's going to be really hard to change it. And I think that's part of the big issue here is that, as you were mentioning, Jason, as kids using platforms like AOL felt so exciting. You know, there was like this possibilities in being connected to people across the world. And, and that's the beauty of social media. It does connect us. It does help us understand people in, in different lifestyles and different backgrounds and all different diversity within each other as human beings. Like that's the reason I love TikTok. TikTok for me has opened my eyes up to people all around the world, people that I wouldn't normally even notice or know that much about. I'll learn about them through that platform, which is incredibly valuable to me. But the same amount of exposure I get to new people, I also get exposure to people that I feel like I'm comparing myself to. And I sometimes have to shut down TikTok because I'll start to feel envious of somebody's lifestyle like you were mentioning, or I'll start to compare myself to them and wonder, oh, that person's more successful than me. That person's better looking than me. That person's in better shape than me. That person's younger than me on and on that whole rabbit hole of measurements, as I said, towards the beginning. And so as much as I want to use that platform to connect with others and learn from others, I'm simultaneously putting myself in a vulnerable position of affecting my mental health in a negative way. And that's what's really sad about where social media has gone is you're kind of like playing Russian roulette every time you go on there. Yeah. And to that point, Whitney, I've really been sitting with how the software and the algorithms and the AI are researcher in social dilemma put it he was doing a presentation on how we are so afraid that artificial intelligence is going to surpass human power and human intelligence and that we are so afraid that it will grow so powerful and omniscient that it will outstrip us but his point is the thing that we should be more concerned about is that AI has already outsmarted human weakness that our weaknesses and our propensity to be hateful, violent, judgmental beings, it's already taking advantage of those tendencies of human psychology. And on that note, I wanted to actually bring up another study. This is going to be the last study I bring up for, for this episode because I know we've talked a lot about studies, but I think it's apropos of, of digging under the hood, which we love to do here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. Mark Manson, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I admire him. He sent out a newsletter this morning. He refers to another study that it's the American Psychological Association. We'll link to it in the show notes again at wellevator.com, dear listener, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. It is a, a new way of looking at data, similarities between groups of people that are large and important. And I'll attempt to quickly summarize this. The study was trying to look at data sets, uh, looking at the differences and the similarities in populations. And it, it was an international survey of almost 87,000 people and categorized them by age, gender, education, nationality, and religion. And then it asked all of these almost 87,000 people to gauge their values around 22 different important topics like trust in science, education, morality, ethics. And then the researchers then analyzed all this data to determine which groups of these people around the world are most similar and dissimilar. So I guess they ran like 168,000 comparisons and found that on average, 
people's values. This is super interesting, Wit. Again, we're talking about a, a set of 87,000 people around the world. Their values were 93.3% the same. And of all the comparisons, only 0.66, less than 1%, 0.66 of them produced results where populations were more dissimilar then their values were similar. So what this means is the majority of the time, in the majority of circumstances with these core values, people see things the same way. They want the same things. They desire the same things. Their ethics are similar. And if you travel around the world and you meet people of different cultures, you kind of notice this, right? But then why right now, and I say this right now, Wit, because you talked about the comparison trap and, and comparing yourself and the differences. Why then right now, especially this year in 2020, we're recording this, does it seem like there's so much fucking divisiveness hatred, stratification, and polarity, right? Because if we're basically feeling the same 93-ish percent of the time, why do we have so much anger, war, hatred, bigotry, and prejudice over the 7% difference, right? It doesn't make any sense, honestly. Sigmund Freud called this the phenomenon, the narcissism of the slight difference. And Freud argued that before we had any framework of cognitive biases, we've talked about that on the podcast, that the small differences between us are magnified in our consciousness and then drown out all the things we have in common, right? So we take our similarities and our common shared humanity for granted, and we obsess over these subtle differences in our character and our culture and religion and ethics as if they're world-ending, right? Like, I have permission to hate you now because of these slight differences. And then why am I saying this? Because social media. The way that the algorithms are designed is they keep feeding us more of what we click on. So if we are into conspiracies and QAnon and anti-vax and anti-5G, we keep getting more and more and more and more of those same articles. If we are pro-Trump, if we are pro-Democrat, whatever the hell it is, we're into cat videos. Like We're going to get bombarded with more and more and more of the same thing. So the point here is that social media and the internet takes the narcissism of these slight differences and multiplies them tens of thousands of times before we even get out of bed in the morning. Like Our minds and our consciousness are primed to loathe these minor dissimilarities that we notice between ourselves and others. And the internet and social media is just giving us millions of reasons to spot those dissimilarities and then permission to hate people that have those slight differences. And to me, that's even more concerning in some ways, Whitney, than the mental health aspects, but it ties in of like, we have more in common than we do that we are indifferent about, but we're focusing on the differences and using them as ammunition to hate each other. And that's frightening. And I think it does go back to profit, though, that manipulation side of it is because we are being monitored, as they talk about in the documentary, in terms of our mood, our behavior, our personality, the trends. And they're trying to predict what we want more of. They're trying to predict what we enjoy. And all of this data is collected and then put into this algorithm, or, or perhaps that creates the algorithm that then presents us with more of what we respond to. And because we tend to respond to outrage in a more intense way, that benefits these people running the software and the apps because they make money off of the more time we spend online. I think that, like, when I think about TikTok, for example, I get pulled into it and I have to be very mindful of how much time I spend on there because it's very stimulating and it's designed to be stimulating. And there's so much money to be made off the stimulation. I also think about as a creator, I don't create that much on TikTok. It's not easy for me to create on TikTok. But I see a lot of people just churning out content on there because they're so rewarded. And now you can get rewarded monetarily. You can get paid to create content, which sounds so great, right? 
even though the numbers are not that impressive, you don't make a ton of money. It reminds me of the days when I used to make a good amount of money on YouTube. And it was like, ooh, I want to create more content. But remember that the pennies that you're getting to make your content on there, the companies behind these platforms are making so much money off of you because you're feeding the machine. You're part of the machine. And I think this is why you and I, Jason, try to take a step back from this and think, well, what do we want our role to be? Like, Do we want to be part of this? And that's something that's come up a lot for me when I was watching The Social Dilemma and afterwards thinking like, how am I contributing to this? Am I contributing in a, a way that feels authentic and in alignment to me? And going back to our conversations about platforms like OnlyFans, I don't have an issue with OnlyFans, just like I don't have an issue with some of these platforms that we've mentioned in the sense of like, there's a lot of freedom there. There's freedom of self-expression. There's freedom of speech. I think that's great. But what I do start to notice is that we are often very driven by the desire to feel accepted and to make money. Those are rooted in our survival needs. We want to feel loved and appreciated and part of a group. We want to feel important. We want to feel like we have a purpose, that we're contributing to society. And social media plays on all of that. Simultaneously, when we're offered money to do those things, it's like triggering us and we get so excited. But whenever I notice myself doing something because the monetary side of it is so appealing, I have to check myself and really step back and think, am I doing this just for the money? And I have fallen prey to that. I think we both have many times. When we don't feel like we have enough money to pay our bills, it can get very scary. It can feel very tempting to do these things. And I found myself wondering sometimes, hmm, maybe I should try OnlyFans. But then I step back and I'm like, but I'm really just doing that because the money sounds good. Not because I actually want to do it. Not because that brings me joy. Not because that adds to my purpose. It's for the money or it's for the curiosity. And personally, for my ethics, I don't want to make decisions like that based on money because not only is that not helpful for me as a person, and it also could be potentially detrimental, but I have to look at how it impacts others. And I think watching this documentary has made me feel like I have a responsibility as a content creator. We have a responsibility as podcasters. People are paying attention to what we're doing. You know, the people that send you direct message, Jason, they value you. They look up to you. They look to you for information and inspiration. And that is a huge responsibility. And then there's plenty of people who are watching or listening to us who we never hear from. And we have zero idea how much we're impacting them. But again, that's that responsibility that what I post on social media, what we share in this podcast, what we write about on our websites and our newsletters, et cetera, just like someone like Mark Manson has impacted you, Jason, you're doing the same for others. I'm doing the same for others. And so I need to take care of those people. I don't treat these people like numbers. And if I do, that's a big mistake. <laughs> I certainly have. I've gotten caught up in the numbers game and just tried to get more, more, more. But I've recently shifted into like valuing these individual people, seeing them as individuals and recognizing it is a huge responsibility that they trust me enough to listen to this podcast, to follow me on Instagram and interact with my posts, to watch my YouTube videos whenever I make them and all the other stuff that I'm doing. That's a big responsibility because what they're seeing from me is impacting them in some way or another that I don't even fully understand. 
And so if I'm making decisions based on vanity, my ego, the desire to make more money, it's a little scary. Just like it's scary that these websites, these apps, these pieces of software are doing things to us that seem insignificant, but add up to be incredibly significant to our mental health. And if they're doing those things and manipulating us in these ways just so that they can make a profit, we can see how it hurts us. And I think that gives us the opportunity to reflect on how we're impacting other people when we make the same decisions just to make money. I think that's a wonderful thing to reflect on, Whitney. And a deeper sense of reflection is, I think, an ongoing conversation that you and I have certainly been having long before Social Dilemma came out, long before this podcast episode. We've been having conversations with Adam Yasmin, who was a wonderful guest in a previous episode here on the podcast, who is starting to a coaching business as a digital wellness coach. And we actually had the pleasure of doing a panel. Was that earlier this year or last year? God, everything is just melting together. We did a panel with Adam in downtown LA, along with Tommy Sobel from Brick and gentlemen from Headspace, and just talking more about the digital wellness conversation. But I think the thing that I'm really reflecting on, Whitney, is how do I better manage not only my mental and emotional health, knowing a deeper layer of the manipulation, psychological manipulation that's happening now? Because I simultaneously feel a level of deep burnout right now from doing any social media. I have people sometimes very lovingly that are like, oh, are you going to post any more YouTube videos? I'm so burnt out, not just on YouTube. I'm just, I feel a level of emotional and psychological burnout on social media that I feel like this conversation and some of the articles that I've been reading that I mentioned today, The Social Dilemma, is almost like the domino that is pushing me over the edge. And when I say that, when I say pushing me over the edge, I'm trying to figure out right now, do I create more succinct boundaries and containers for my engagement with social media, a la getting a case safe, creating some sort of mechanism where I'm only spending 30 minutes a day on social media, say 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at night. Or what I'm also considering is deleting all of the apps from my phone, putting out a post on all the major networks saying, I'm going to be off social media indefinitely. I don't know when or if I'll be back. But if you want to communicate with me, if you have my cell phone number, call or DM me, or you can email me directly. I'm trying to figure out and also think about getting a light phone that doesn't have any apps, that doesn't have any stuff like that. I'm trying to figure out in this moment, I think as we sense maybe we're getting to the end of this podcast, it's been a longer one. What is it that I can do for my mental, emotional, and physical health that is going to not alleviate the sense of burnout, but somehow recapture my sense of autonomy? Because I realize, as I mentioned to you, that over the past 11 years, that there is a corollary in my mind between all the thousands of videos and posts we've done and my mental health declining, that if I were to limit or eliminate my participation with this as an experiment, Whitney, how would it affect my mental and emotional health? I'm very curious as an experiment to honestly get the fuck off of them completely. And I know that's tough because you and I have a business, we have this podcast, we have things, but my mental health and emotional wellness, I realize, is of the highest priority. And if that suffers, everything suffers. So I guess I'm saying all this to you as my best friend and to the public, to the listeners, like I'm considering either severely limiting my interaction or completely eliminating my interaction with social media for an unspecified period of time right now. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do yet. I think a lot of people are, are doing things like that, Jason, and you're certainly not alone in it. And <laughs> it's funny to me because some people will ask me like, why I'm not doing this or that? Like, when am I going to post on YouTube again? 
And I don't even know if those people realize we have a podcast, right? Like (laughs) this podcast takes a lot of work. We have three episodes a week and there's a lot that happens behind the scenes. And going back to what you were saying before, there's just so many platforms and there's this almost cultural expectation for us to be on all of them all the time. And we're not machines. Like we talk a lot about how we don't want to be part of hustle culture. And we've been trained through whether he intended this to have such a long-term effect or not. But people like Gary Vaynerchuk had this idea of like, you got to be everywhere in order to make a difference, in order to build a business, in order to monetize, and you know, in order to grow. And I reflect a lot on like what's really necessary and what's the rush to. I think going back to what we were talking about at the beginning or sometime (laughs) towards the first half of this episode, is that there's just such a a fast-paced world that we're in right now. And I don't think that human beings have evolved to cope with that properly. And even if we do evolve to cope with that, I don't know if that's in our best interest. Maybe we never really will. Maybe we're forcing ourselves to live and operate a certain way that's really bad for us. And I think it's so great that more attention is being called to mental health But mental health is also becoming a trend. It's becoming like a thing that influencers say that they care about. But like, do they really care about it if they're promoting hustle culture? Do they really care about mental health if they're sharing pictures of themselves looking perfect all the time? I mean, that's what I start to question too, is like, we need to take this incredibly seriously. And I had a conversation in the Beyond Measure group, which is right now in like the alpha slash beta testing period. I have this small group of people who are helping me shape what will become a public version of Beyond Measure. And this past weekend, we discussed the social dilemma a little bit and and talked about the pros and cons of social media. And most of the people in that group, Jason, are off Facebook. Most of the people in the group are considering being off all of social media. Most people don't find that much value in those platforms. And I think that's part of what's happening. And I've been wondering how these platforms are going to respond to the social dilemma because I'm sure they're scrambling right now with that documentary being so successful and seen by so many people. You're not the only one. I bet you a lot of our listeners are either barely on social media or not on it at all. And so that leads me to think, does it even matter how much we post on there? You know what I mean? Like To be honest, a lot of the times that I post on social media is when I'm being paid to post on there or when I, I really want to reach people for a specific purpose. I'm not on social media all the time because it doesn't bring me that much joy or satisfaction. I go on there for business reasons or occasionally I go on there to connect with people. Oh, you know what? I take that back. <laughs> I caught myself there. I, you know, honestly, I do find that the joy I get from a platform like Instagram is through the direct message feature when I can message people and have conversations with them. And part of my aim right now is to bring people offline, off of social media into having more connected conversations. That's why I've been working on Beyond Measure. As my hope with Beyond Measure is to give people a, a sense of real community off of social media. And I've really been observing my own relationships and dynamics on that as a result. I'm not quite at that point that you are, Jason, where I'm thinking about getting off of social media, but I certainly don't feel like I have to be on there all the time. And my heart goes out to anybody who does feel like that. Granted, I go on TikTok a lot and I use that as a source of entertainment. And I have to reflect a lot on the role that that's playing in my life too. 
And I think that that's really what it comes down to. I guess our question for the listener is, what benefits are you getting from social media and really examining it, noticing it? If you haven't watched The Social Dilemma yet, we recommend it, obviously. It's not a perfect documentary. I certainly had issues with it, but gives you a lot of food for thought and it gives you an opportunity to become more aware of the role that social media plays in your life and other people's lives. And really taking a step back and saying, do I want to be part of this? And if so, how do I want to be part of it? And what is it doing for me? How is it serving my life? And if you examine your behavior and recognize it's not really helping you, maybe it's causing more harm than good. Maybe it is a good time to get off there at least temporarily. And the good news is that since these apps are constantly changing, (laughs) you may decide to get back on there one day and maybe social media will be shaped in a way that you really enjoy again. Maybe you'll find a different platform. There's new social networks starting up all the time. There's new apps. There's, as Jason was talking about, there's technology designed to give you a better relationship with social media. There's a lot of options. And I think they'll continue to, to pop up as a ripple effect of this documentary and other information out there. This certainly isn't the first time that this is going to be discussed, and it's not the last. There have been articles about this and videos about this subject matter for many years, and Jason and I have both been observing it and reflecting on it. So I think that's the other important thing to leave people with today is this is not something you're going to figure out right now. (laughs) Jason and I have been grappling with this for a long time, and we're constantly examining our relationship with these platforms. And I think this is just the beginning of a conversation or the midpoint of a conversation, certainly not a final answer or a final decision or a quick way to, to determine it. And um, as far as it goes for you, Jason, I think your mental health is, as you said, the most important thing. So if you need to step away, I don't think it's really that big of a deal. I think that we've created with this podcast is what really matters to me right now. And as long as we keep this up, <laughs> I'm okay with limiting social media in terms of what we do with Wellevator. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Wit, because I think that there's still remnants of this strange voice in my head that's like, but you need to stay relevant and you need to keep posting. And what about the algorithm, right? It's this constant pressure that is part of the hustle culture. That is, if if you are not immediately top of mind in your industry or category, then you lose relevancy. And if you lose relevancy because you're not posting, because then the algorithm won't favor you and you won't show up in the searches. I mean, we can go again into the construction of the software of these programs and apps and that again, you are rewarded for how often you post, the hashtags you use, the titles you use. I mean, it's people are constantly trying to crack the code, right? And I just appreciate you saying what you said, Whitney, because I, if I'm honest about it, I started to feel burnt out on all of this. If I look back to like probably 2017, after my first book came out, after I launched My Healthy Hustle, like spring of 2017, I was already feeling burnt out. So I've been feeling an increased level of disillusionment and burnout for over three years at the time of this recording, like three and a half years at this point. I'm considering doing maybe like uh, levels to like limiting my interaction or even just kind of indefinitely, again, like I said, putting a post out that says, hey, I'm going to be off for a while. I don't know when or if I'll be back, but if you want me, call me or email me, right? And therefore, reclaiming my mental space and my attention to know that if people really want to communicate with me, right? Like people that really want to get me, 
they'll email me or they'll call me. And that's it. Not the seven DM boxes on every social platform, not the constant comments and the likes, but just like, hey, the people who really want to speak with me that want to interact, it's phone or email and that's it. And even just saying that, I start to feel like a physical sense of relief even just saying that, Whitney. And I think that's a really important thing to pay attention to. Like my body is responding to me saying that. And I think that's an important thing to pay attention to. And I'm glad you're speaking about this because there's probably somebody listening who's in a similar position, Jason. And I, again, going back to us speaking about this from the perspective of influencer culture and content creation, I wish that more influencers would talk about these things or content creators, as I prefer the term. <laughs> I wish more people in, that do this professionally would discuss it because I, I think there's this fear of losing relevancy. But I always wonder, where is that coming from? And for me, I think about back in, when was this? 2016, I think I was trying to work on my YouTube strategy because YouTube was such a big part of my career for so long. And I remember learning about how important it was to like post consistently. And if you didn't post consistently, you'd fall out of the algorithm. And I, I think that that's probably what happened to me. And I noticed that when I got less views on YouTube, I felt less relevant. I made less money and my motivation started to die down. And it gave me the opportunity to reflect on like why I was posting on YouTube to begin with. And I think a lot of that was shaped by the ego, was shaped with the desire to feel important and to make money. And as I said earlier, I don't want that to rule my decisions. And I also feel grateful that both you and I, Jason, we experienced life before all of this. Again, it wasn't that long ago that Instagram was just used for fun for us. It really wasn't until about five or six years ago that Instagram even became part of our careers. And so we were fine before those platforms. We were fine when Facebook was just something you used to connect with friends from college and high school. And we will be fine if we decided not to do them. We were fine before we had a podcast. I really love doing the podcast, but who knows? There might be a period where we don't want to do this anymore. We have no idea. And I think that we have to remember that we will be fine no matter what decision we make, as long as the decisions are based on our deeper core values and coming back to a sense of contributing and serving the world versus acting purely from our own ego and our personal benefits and all of those things that drive so many of us. I've taken so much issue with that. And the amount of times where I felt like my self-worth was shaped by how many people watched my videos or followed me or any of that like that's sickening to me honestly like that so many people base their identity and self-worth based on how many people give them attention and it's a very human desire there's nothing wrong with the desire but what makes me sad is that it can be so detrimental i've experienced it firsthand you've experienced it firsthand we have been pressured to keep going even when we feel burnt out. And that's all part of this capitalistic hustle culture that we're in, this productivity world. And we don't need to participate in that, Jason. And I certainly would rather have you feel your best every single day than have you do things that don't feel like they're in true alignment. And the same thing goes for you, the listener. I really do hope that you question all of these things. I really hope that you figure out what works best for you and why you're doing it? What are your motivations? And if you need support with that, 
I hope that you can find that within our podcast episodes with our guests. We have an upcoming guest this week with Jason Horton, who's been another fellow content creator for many years. And he's been through all sorts of ups and downs with social media. So it's great timing. (laughs) It's kind of a coincidence that his episode's coming up soon. And he'll share with you a lot of the benefits of social media for him. He's going to talk about his book and what it's like to be a published author and how that came about for him. Social media does have a lot of benefits, but along with those benefits do come some compromises. And we want to make sure that the pros outweigh the cons for you, no matter what you decide with your life. That's the aim of Wellevator. We're here to make sure that you really feel your best each and every day and learn new tools, think about life in different ways. And we'll let you in into the vulnerable moments, the things that we're reflecting on. And Jason can keep us posted on his social media journey and how that evolves. Yeah, I think I'm going to make some decisions really, really soon on that, Whitney. And of course, I really feel like there's a lot of layers being shed right now of expectation, pressure, comparison, the things that we mentioned and as the expectations are what I think I ought to be doing or should be doing or guilting myself for what I'm not doing, I think that limiting or eliminating my social media interaction is going to allow even deeper layers of healing for me. I just have an intuition about that. So I just want to extend my appreciation, right? Because there was a part of me that was like, oh man, we're business partners and we've collabed on... I mean, you and I have supported and collabed with each other on so many incredible things on social media for the past decade almost. But It was almost this fear of like, whoa, if I tell Whitney, who's my business partner and friend and collaborator, like, I think I want to get off and I don't know when I'm going to be back. Is she going to be mad? Is she going to tell me, no, we have to do the podcast? You know, we have to keep like, but the fact that you responded with just so much acceptance and love, like, it diffuses any of the fear or or reticence that I had to share with you, Whitney, what I was thinking. Because I was afraid. I was like, oh man, is she going to? pressure me? Is she going to be angry with me? But as an experiment, I just think that this is a thing that I need to do. And so I just appreciate your love and support with it. And we'll definitely report back with what I decide to do on a future episode. So with that, dear listener, thank you for getting uncomfortable with us here on the podcast and for listening to all of our perspectives and thoughts in this journey that we are on with social media and business and influence and mental health and all the things. This is really the core of what Whitney and I started this podcast for is to have these type of conversations. And once again, for all of their research articles and links for things like the light phone and go brick and our friend Adam and digital wellness and everything for you to go another layer deeper, please go to our website once again, which is wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can click on the podcast section which will take you directly to the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes. I think this is episode number 128. So we definitely have a lot more content and guests and perspectives to share with you soon. So we hope you subscribe to the podcast. And if you do love this episode and love what you hear and feel that this has contributed to your life in some profound and lasting way, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast. It really helps to get the word out to a much larger international audience. So with that, We love you and appreciate you. And thanks for getting uncomfortable with us here on the podcast today. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 